Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Your Case is on Hold. Thanks for joining us again. I'm Antonia Chen. I'm deputy editor of, again, the best subspecialty that I was in orthopedics, adult reconstruction. And I have my co-host here. I'm uh, Andrew Schoenfeld, deputy editor for Methods. Is this your homework, Larry? Is this your submission, Antonia? This is all you have to work with. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I like you, Antonia. <laughs> Just, it works. You have, you have to use so many cuss words. <laughs> I try to be good. We try to be good. Try. <laughs> and we'll continue to try because these opinions are our own and not of JBJS and don't reflect anyone else. So we'll keep things kosher around here as much as we can do it. So... Uh, one of the things we want to say is we're brought to you here today by JBJS Video. We've all been there before. When your case is on hold, you have another complicated case coming up next. Go to the video library. Check it out. Check out some really good videos of all different approaches, of all different subspecialties, of all different areas. Uh, it really helps enhance your learning and, and all available on JBJS. Without further ado, we're going to jump on in and we're going to go into um, top of the pile. So there are a bunch of notable articles of 2022. So if you get a summary from us on a bi-weekly, on an every other week basis, um, you want one for a summary of all of 2022, jump aboard on JBJS. Our amazing editor-in-chief, Mark Santowski, has one there and it's permanently free. You want to I don't think you picked any of the ones that we've covered. <laughs> <laughs> all the ones that we selected for our conversations, I was like, wow. Uh... <laughs> Thanks, Mark. We see differently. This is what makes a good editorial board, right? Well-rounded. It's like you're covering all the bases. You're covering all the bases. After 30 episodes, I'm still a mystery to you. <laughs> you We're mysteries to all of our listeners. So we thank you for that because it keeps it going. Otherwise, we can't reveal everything at once. That'd be just too boring then. Not going to figure us out. <laughs> That's the goal. So if you want to update in hand and wrist surgery, then go to What's New in Hand and Wrist Surgery by Bone et al. It's also permanently free. Be That Doctor by Smith. It's also permanently free. A call to action for musculoskeletal research funding. The growing economic and disease burden of musculoskeletal conditions in the United States is not reflected in musculoskeletal research funding by McConaughey et al. And obviously, since this is a focus on research articles that we're going into depth about, this is incredibly relevant. As we all know, back pain is the most prevalent musculoskeletal complaint that doctors see patients for, and yet the musculoskeletal research funding does not correlate to that. Yeah, important work from Dr. McConaughey, who was thinking that there would be more research funding 10 years from now when he was talking to himself in the future. But it turned out that that was him talking to himself from six years into the future where he was already saying there was going to be more funding 10 years in the future. If you don't know what I'm talking about, look up Matthew McConaughey on YouTube. <laughs> Matthew McConaughey, the voice of the future. And the voice of calls to action for musculoskeletal research. Which we appreciate. So without further ado, why don't you take us off on the first headline? All right. My headline is Emerging Minimally Invasive Percutaneous Procedures for Periacetabular Osteolytic Metastases by eBay and colleagues. Also, stay tuned to the end of this session for the answers to the March Madness Challenge from the March 1st episode, so you don't want to miss that. 
Uh, and you certainly don't want to miss this. This is a current concepts review, touching on a particular uh, area of research interest for myself. Although my work is in spinal metastases, this is about periacetabular osteolytic metastases. Challenging condition, metastatic disease in the musculoskeletal system. Obviously, with advancements in cancer care that's provided for patients, the prevalence, which is already pretty high, um, generally estimated in the range of like 70% of patients who go on to stage four will have some degree of uh, muscular or musculoskeletal involvement. A lot of that does end up being in the axial skeleton. So a, a lot of intersection here between the spine side and these periacetabular osteolytic metastases. Very challenging because these patients are frail. They have multiple medical comorbidities, and there is a uh, limited event horizon, uh, unfortunately, uh, because all of these patients are uh, already in stage four. And these impact quality of life. They impact capacity to be independent. And this is very challenging, especially when the answer to correct it is a very invasive, intense surgical procedure that can then further debilitate the individual, uh, tax their physiologic reserves to the point of exhaustion. And this can even, in the past, uh, accelerate the mortality event uh, or exacerbate uh, other comorbidities to the point where the patients don't ever fully recover from the uh, surgical intervention. But with advancements in surgical technology, anesthesia techniques, and minimally invasive procedures, there are new and exciting uh, technologies and interventions on the horizon, and that's what they're talking about here in, in this very concise, illustrative, and illuminative document. There's some great uh, figures here, so you should definitely check that out. The minimally invasive procedures that they're touching on are not just like pure orthopedic surgical interventions. They're talking about ablations, PMMA, cement reinforcement, balloon osteoplasty, percutaneous screw fixation, which is more conventional, of course, and then combinations of, of these techniques. I thought, you know, incredibly interesting looking at local cancer control, looking at the effect of the ablation on cancer-laden bone. These are all incredibly important, and they do kind of go back and, and really bring you up to speed on all the literature. Table one has a really nice breakdown of uh, the key most influential articles in this space. I will say that, you know, some, uh, just because of the nature of this topic, some of the cohorts that are included in these studies can be quite small. There are some that just, you know, have a handful of, of experiential encounters with patients, you know, talking about six, seven, nine, you know, under 10, but there are others that have over a hundred and one that has over 150. So there's, you know, nonetheless, that's the current state of the literature in this clinical setting and scenario. And you really get some very good insights. The summary in particular, if, if you don't have time to read it all and you just want to pop to the summary, it's basically like two pages. And I think that even that gives you a nice holistic sense of what are the available technologies? How can we improve patient care while minimizing the hit that the, the physiology will take for these frail individuals who are already dealing with a very challenging condition that impacts quality of life, activities of daily living, physical function? And reduction in pain alone can improve both outlook and physical function for a patient, getting them back to ambulating, lowering their risk of pathologic fracture. All these things can incrementally improve quality of life, enhance longevity, and keep these patients independent, which as we know is their number one main stated goal. So really well done. 
Uh, my hat's off to these individuals. It's a, a number of different um, surgeons contributing from Yale, the University of Mississippi, and Texas Southwestern. So de definitely worth your time. Definitely check it out. Nothing else to add except agreed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's not much that, you know, this is not something that we're putting on hold here. This is this is 100% positive across the board, uh, as I am always. Always positive, because clearly that's what we are at baseline. This is part of the mystery, because sometimes when we're not, it's a surprise. So mine is a little bit different, and you're going to tell me if you have to put it on hold or not. So I looked at quadriceps strain and total knee arthroplasty, contribution to the tourniquet and intermediary rod to post-operative thigh pain, a randomized controlled trial. And this is by Stocks et al. There's an infographic on it, and it's also permanently free. So for we've all done total knee replacements in our residencies. Some of us do it for regular practice, and unfortunately, thigh pain is real. We have our patients who undergo surgery, and afterwards, they have persistent thigh pain. And so this single surgeon said, you know, is it from the IM rod? Is it from tourniquet use or is it a combination that can make it better or worse? And also looked at hyperflexion as a potential contribution to thigh pain after total knee arthroplasty. So the study design was four groups of randomization. So either tourniquet use, yes or no, and IM rod, yes or use or no. So it's a combination of those different groups. So one group got no tourniquet and no IM rod, and the group got, you know, IM rod and tourniquet, and then either of the uh, combination of those two. Now, the sample was only 97 patients, which is not high. It looked at a pain difference, had to be 1.5 on a numeric rating scale system. And uh, they found that the sample size had to be 90. Um, and they got 100 and uh, some did had attrition, you know, due to various reasons. So there was 97 patients, which did fit their sample size calculation. I would say it would be interesting from a study design perspective. I would have loved to see a no tourniquet, an actual no tourniquet group. So the the group that was no tourniquet actually got a tourniquet placed on them, but it wasn't inflated. So they still had the pressure of a tourniquet. And I know from personal anecdotal uses that if I apply a tourniquet to a patient, they actually still have pain after surgery. Now, whether or not it's the application alone that's causing it and it's left under the duration of the surgery, hard to say, even though it's not inflated, but I have experienced that in patients. And for full disclosure, I personally don't use a tourniquet. I don't apply a tourniquet at the time of surgery. Another thing that would have been interesting too is they they did say they hypothesized hyperflexion as a potential cause of the increased thigh pain. So the group they used was uh, that they didn't have an intermediary rod was um, personalized uh, instrumentation. So you didn't have to put an IM rod on, you had a personalized cutting guide. Uh, it'd be interesting to potentially try something like robotics where in robotics, you don't have to hyperflex for as long of a period of time and see if that made a bearing on a difference in patients' thigh pain. It would also have been interesting to record the duration of hyperflexion for each case. You know, in, in manual cases with intramedular rod, maybe there was more hyperflexion duration versus those who are not, or based on thigh circumference of the patient, that can make hyperflexion even more prevalent. So it'd be interesting to see duration of hyperflexion in our patients. The study population consisted of primary, unilateral, and bilateral total knee arthroplasty. Bilateral knee arthroplasty patients are a different player than unilateral primary knee arthroplasty. They randomized the bilateral knee into different groups. So there's no, quote, one good leg to stand on. So whether or not I would have personally probably just stuck to unilateral total knee arthroplasty for full effect because there were 22 patients who had bilateral total knees, which means there were 44 of the knees that were included in the study that were from bilateral patients. Typically, they collected demographics, which is normal, diabetes, range of motion, knee and thigh pain. So they separated knee pain from thigh pain uh, on their numeric rating scale, the numeric pain rating scale. 
And the thigh circumference, 20 centimeters proximal to the proximal aspect of the patella and then maximum flexion during surgery. One downside that I saw there when it came to methodology is they collected CUS scores, but they couldn't include it in the analysis because they were due to, it was, they weren't reported because of missing data at all time points. Makes you concerned, says if they were missing at all time points, then what other things could be missing? But that's always something to be concerned about when it comes to data collection, because you're hopefully assessing all these things from every patient at every time point that's listed here. And the time points are really preoperatively post-up day one, two weeks and six weeks after surgery. Didn't go further than six weeks. Authors also stated that the ecchymosis and tenderness were evaluated after the bulky surgical dressing was removed, but doesn't say when it was removed. Was it removed on post-up day one, post-up day two, post-up day three? We assume it's post-up day one because that's when the MRI was obtained. We don't actually know that information. Now they did obtain this MRI on post-operative day one, which is good to evaluate anatomy, how reliable is that really after surgery? You just opened up the wound. There's going to be fluid in there. There's going to be edema. There's going to be streaking, all sorts of things that can cloud the image. And, you, and on top of it, you have an implant and the brand new implant is going to scatter within the MRI as well too. So I'm curious as to why they didn't do the MRI either on week two or week six at a later time point um, to see, and then just take the thigh pain that you measured on post-up day one and see if it correlated to week two MRI or week six MRI. We obviously can't get an MRI at every time point, which would be nice just from a cost perspective. But it probably would have been nicer to see that bumped out a little bit longer. Interestingly enough, um, they did report that 88 patients report received an MRI, but 88 patients were not in the study. There are only 75 patients in the study. 88 knees received an MRI. And my curiosity is why the remaining nine were not didn't receive an MRI. You know, was it due to scheduling? Because they were all in the hospital, it sounds like, at that time on post-op day one. Why didn't they all get an MRI at that time frame? So the results of the study demonstrated that the odds of seeing an MRI-identified quad strain were higher in patients who received a tourniquet during surgery. They looked at all the other factors like IM rod use, preoperative range of motion, maximum flexion during surgery. They influenced the odds ratio, the main predictor, of but it did not show any differences with regards to MRI-identified quad strain. So the only factor that really identified quad strain whether or not that's what correlated to thigh pain, um, was tourniquet use. And this was seen at two-week time point. It would have been nice to see the study carried out longer to see if there's long-term effects. Previous tourniquet studies have gone longer than six weeks and go to the three-month mark, if not longer. And they go up to even the one-year time frame. So the author's conclusion essentially is that thigh pain occurs after total knee arthroplasty in a very high percentage of patients. And some of these patients, their thigh pain is actually more painful than their knee pain. And that patients with persistent thigh pain have MRI quad strain on post-op day one, and it is associated with uh, tourniquet use. Now, the interesting thing is the authors do not mention tourniquet use in the abstract conclusion. They only mention that in the paper conclusion, but their results show that there is a tie between quad strain and tourniquet use. So it'd be important to highlight that probably in the um, abstract as well to say so. It would have been nice to see more patients in the study. I'm not 100% sure that this contributes a great deal to how we change how we practice. If you are doing tourniquet use and you can wean away from that, potentially that can help with showing MRI quad strain. But even without tourniquet use and just a tourniquet application, patients had really high thigh pain after surgery. So that's where I leave it at. Doctor? I uh, used an inflated tourniquet once when I was in a barbershop quartet in Skokie, Illinois. I also used an uninflated tourniquet once on the set of Blue Lagoon. Can you believe that somebody once accused me of being calculated charm? Seriously. <laughs> you're no, going to say all the quotes of what he's on the paper? <laughs> uh, no, I'm not. <laughs>
Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they did a power uh, analysis. Uh, they had the the numbers that they wanted to uh, enroll. It makes sense, you know, when you're putting the tourniquet on, even if you're not inflating it, like you're, you're you are cinching it down and tying it up and putting a squeeze on the the quadriceps musculature. You're ahead. Of, you you you've got it right. Like you said, you don't use it. You're not doing it. Make it happen without the tourniquet. The navigation, the robot, precise cuts in, out, hello, goodbye, get it done in, in under 90 minutes and good to go, right? That's it, you know, keep your keep your efficiencies going. And we're going to talk about time efficiencies in the next one for sure. Yeah, time challenges. Time <laughs> challenges. How do you measure time? Is that your segue into uh, the your cases on hold featurette? That it's pretty good, right? It's good. All right. <laughs> Cost analysis of conversion totaling arthroplasty, a multi-institutional database study by Denier et al. And there is a visual summary with this. Do you want me to go into depth with it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they call it a multi-institutional database study. It really is the National Surgical Quality Improvement Program data. So I wouldn't quite call that a multi-institutional database study, although it is kind of, I, I get what they're saying. Like, the National Surgical Quality Improvement Program gets data from multiple institutions. But for me, a multi-institutional study is one where they're, you know, principals at Brigham and Women's and Mass General and the Cleveland Clinic and Cedar sinai and the University of Michigan, and they're all contributing patients. That's like a classic multi-institutional study. The National Surgical Quality Improvement Program is a quality improvement program that collects data from numerous centers across the United States. Each year, they put out what's called a participant user file, which is data, summary data that's available to all the institutions that are contributing. And starting in 2005, which was the year that the program was initiated, to the most recent participant user files, which I believe is 2020, as reported here, they've increased the number of participating centers. They've increased the number of cases being contributed by centers. It used to be you know, very small number of orthopedic cases, a lot of general surgery and vascular surgery cases. Now they have institutions from outside the United States contributing. Overwhelmingly, these are uh, tertiary care centers, academic centers. It costs money to participate. The centers have dedicated nurse abstractors. So um, it costs money to participate. They pay to, to play, so to speak. And the program is neither purposely sampled, stratified, nor uh, nationally representative. Not that they were making that case. That's just general guidance because you do see that a lot, that people will say this is nationally representative data from the NSQIP or NISQIP or however you want to refer to it, and, and that isn't the case. And it does tend to be an overused data source because it is so widely available and there are so many patients. It, it only surveys uh, outcomes generally to about 30 days and has been used a lot for kind of the data mine level four sort of, you know, what are the risk factors for surgery X in outcome Y or procedure Z or whatever it may be. And so uh, it kind of gets a bad rap, but actually here, this is a good use of the, the National Surgical Quality Improvement Program because you're drawing a lot of patients from a lot of different centers with your varying clinical variation and things like that to make some meaningful comparisons on on this question that the authors wanted to get at. And that's really looking at, you know, estimations of the RVUs for total knee arthroplasty 
versus revision total knee arthroplasty. So they're using a propensity score model to develop the match, which you could do it a lot of different ways. It, it doesn't enhance the methodology as it does in some causal inference uh, testing paradigms to use PSM here, but it's fine that they did, uh, no problem. Uh, so they, they did a one-to-one nearest neighbor propensity score match without replacement. They specified a caliber, which is, of course, a best practice. And they, contr- they, they accounted for sex, age, BMI, diabetes, hypertension, CHF, COPD, smoking, bleeding, dialysis, and the ASA classification. And this has, uh, so they got 1,600 matched cases in, in, in the cohort. And the mean operative time for total knee was, I said, 90 minutes before, and this is about 98 minutes with a corresponding RVU per minute of 0.25. And then the operative time for, um, you know, what they're calling calm conversion TKA, uh, I said revision, but you know what I meant, conversion TKA was 124.3 minutes with RVU per minute of 0.19. So they have a conversion factor here for the RVU calculation, average of RVU per minute values for individual patients. It's been described previously in cited work. And uh, using the conversion factor, this equates to $8.11 per minute for TKA versus $6.39 per minute for the conversion TKA. And conversion TKA, again, keep in mind, this is just 30 days, but nonetheless, higher overall complications, transfusions, reoperation, readmission. And their conclusion is that billing guidelines lead to lower compensation for conversion TKA despite increased complexity. Longer operative time, higher complications, increased resource utilization may incentivize providers to avoid performing this operation. So first off, I I could say when, when I was in training already many decades ago, I can distinctly recall the individuals that I trained with working in total joint arthroplasty talking about this very thing. And then also even, you know, looking at revision, like the difference in in the the reimbursement for revision versus primary total knee in terms of the workup and and, uh, the extent of the procedure and the risk of the procedure. So it's kind of like, yeah, you know, they quantified the outcome in a way that you can really sort of put your hands on it and it's tangible. But the concept certainly isn't isn't novel. I think some of this is eye opening. I mean, it's useful to understand, and um, the you know econometrics in orthopedics. I, I think you know we are aware generally across the board, across all fields, and not even just the orthopedic field, that reimbursement per RVUs or the CPTs really around the uh, procedures are are shrinking or changing in ways to substantiate expansion of medicine. There, there's, you know, one thing that's particularly problematic is that it's sort of like they have this finite universe of, of um, CPT RVU allocations. And if you're going to change one or introduce a new CPT code, then you have to like take RVUs from others and add it in. It's a very complex process and sort of the the conceptualization doesn't really make that much sense um, since all of this is abstract that we're talking about anyway, but that's the way that they want to handle it, they being the powers that be who make these determinations. And so on the one hand, um, I think it these are nice numbers, 
I think it's very telling. You know, some people just kind of assume in the econometrics of orthopedics that it's like, well, if you know, I'm doing a case in an OR, that just outmatches anything that can be produced somewhere else. But if you're talking about seeing patients on a 15-minute schedule and you have like six level one visits, which would be uh, an hour and a half, that's actually six level one visits is about the same as, as a primary total knee in terms of like the reimbursement. And then there's no chance your case can be put on hold. There's no downtime. There's no 90-day global period where there's no further reimbursement for the follow-up evaluation. There's no initial, you know, intake HMP visit for which there's no reimbursement. And so the econometrics are changing. I think that that is something that this is demonstrating in a very tangible way. The argument that this is going to incentivize providers to avoid performing this operation is what we call a non sequitur, meaning like that wasn't studied in this research. You didn't survey surgeons to find out, you know, what's their threshold for if they're going to do this or not going to do this. Also, many surgeons, they're not getting a dollar figure per RVU. They're, some of them are just you know salaried, so that doesn't factor in, or they are already getting a pre-specified dollar figure per RVU that has nothing to do with like the actual reimbursement, and that's factored in other ways. So the argument in the conclusion is definitely holding the line. Because one, that wasn't actually what was studied here. Second, you know, it's kind of it's kind of a straw person argument because people have been saying these kinds of things. I think since Medicare went to went from like the reimbursement for usual and customary charges to like a fixed set of reimbursement, people have been saying, "Oh, this is going to disincentivize. This is going to disincentivize. This is going to disincentivize." But I haven't seen that disincentivization happen. If if disincentivization is even a word, but We'll say it's a word, and I haven't seen it happen. You can create the word disincentivization. Totally makes sense. So, you know, as someone who does these procedures, I will say that, you know, it's one of those things is, you know, we all like to be, for lack of a better term, compensated for the work and effort that we put in. But to your point, we're going to be driven more and more to do outpatient stuff as opposed to inpatient where you can't put your case on hold. That said, a few other things I would add to your uh, setting here is that I completely agree with the complete analysis on NISQIP. The hardest part about these coding studies is that everything is based on coding, right? So 27447 is the code for a primary total knee. You'd have to add the code for removal of hardware. Well, I've definitely removed hardware and I haven't included the code. So it wouldn't have been included in said conversion total knee arthroplasty or uh, analysis. So that's something that's interesting to look at because you have to make sure that the coding, you know, it's as good as you get it. Garbage in, garbage out. So you have to make sure you have the right stuff. Data integrity, you know, they had 1,600 patients, which is great for conversion total knee ones. Um, but if the patient had an operative time of less than 30 minutes or greater than 500 minutes, um, they were excluded. The number was over 1,600 right there, actually. So that's a lot of patients to exclude in a study. So, you know, you're just worried about the timing of it. Did patients really, did, did surgeons really take over 500 minutes to do a conversion total knee? That would definitely swing things a little bit differently. Or did they take less than 30 minutes? And so those definitely changed things. Um, and they, you know, they In cut them case, out. In which case, I'm wondering what kind of hardware was being removed and also what kind of hardware was being put in? <laughs> so, and, and that's a good question, right? Like you could be putting a hinge is probably, you know, our, our most constrained one. But what if you, you know, tried doing a primary conversion and the primary implant didn't go well, then you went to a semi-constrained one. And if that didn't go well, then you went to a hinge, you know, and that could really build a lot of time. I and mean, their thought process is that this would be 
they were outliers, right? Like over 500 was probably incorrectly coded or incorrectly said, which, you know, some studies have done that, but 500 is a lot of time. So that's really complex and really complicated as well, too. And, you know, says it is a good use of time or, or and the right for the thing for the patient was obviously done and ideally done. That's the greatest thing there. So, you know, what you're saying is the take home message is that there ideally should be some sort of different RVUs for it. But the econometrics of how you all put it together is all dependent. And and what conver- what counts as a conversion is the other thing, too. Right. If a patient had a knee scope, people won't count that as a conversion because it's just a different procedure. They did put in there a strict criteria of saying hardware removal, you know, but is an endo button from an ACL reconstruction a hardware removal? Is an ACL removal that was a previous reconstruction considered hardware removal? Or do you actually have to take out a screw or a plate or something else? So there's a little more that goes into the weeds of things, but that's something to think about. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have the knee with the hardware. It goes on to Million Bridge at Saxa rubra, it sees in the sky in hoc signo vincis, and then it, there's your conversion. There you go. I love it. All right. On to our honorable mentions. We have nationwide results of microorganism antigen testing as a component of preoperative synovial fluid analysis by Toller et al. It's permanently free. Tissue integration and chondroprotective potential of acetabular labral augmentation with autograph tendon study of a porcine model by Sue et al. It's 30 days free. And then normative femoral and tibial lengths in a modern population of 21st century U.S. children by Chen et al., not me. So things to think about. And now for our March Madness final. I like how you got that disclaimer in there. <laughs> yes. All right. So the March Madness challenge. Uh, love those who reached out with their uh, suggestions. Um, and um, just to remind those who didn't hear it the, the first time. We're looking for the nine institutions that antedate, essentially, the formation of the United States and were chartered by the Crown of England within the United States. These are universities, of course. So as Antonia's aware, because I told her at the end of last episode, her uh, lineage covers two of them. But uh, going in order, we have uh, Harvard, Dartmouth, Yale, Brown. Princeton, the University of Pennsylvania, Columbia, Rutgers, and the College of William and Mary. And that's our March Madness challenge for this year. I hope everyone's brackets are doing good or are in at this point in any case, and uh, that everyone is following along on the college basketball pool, have you, for the NCAA men and women's tournaments. I love it. After our last one, I, I asked for the answers. So I got a sneak preview of all the results. So keeps it fun. Yeah, you know, and we're we we uh we're seeing patients together uh in clinic on Monday. So you get all like the uh you know the different insights and that's why you're immune to the to the oddities that come through. By oddities, it's the things that I look forward to, not oddities. We we covered I think we covered history, literature, science, all in this one episode. Big Lebowski, Usual Suspects again. What else? Uh, March Madness Challenge. I mean, what more can you ask for? I think we're out of time. We're probably out of time, but we'll try to do better next time. We'll still be here. Your case will still be on hold. Let's be honest. Enjoy it. Enjoy the wait. (laughs) See you till next time.